Hi everyone, I'm Adam Johnson. I'm a dad and a rare disease patient advocate, a self-proclaimed dadvocate. From the onset of symptoms and even after an eventual diagnosis, the isolation was almost as excruciating as the symptoms themselves. I felt so alone in so many ways. One of the most prominent ways in particular was as a parent. I knew I couldn't be the only person with a rare disease who was also trying to raise children, but it sure felt like I was. As I've learned, when there's not a specific community you're looking for, one that you need, sometimes you just have to make it yourself. It's taken a while, but I finally decided to do just that. And here we are. This is Parents is Rare, a series brought to you by Energy in Action. Living life as a parent with a rare disease can be quite paradoxical. We laugh and cry, we're vulnerable and scared, we're brave and afraid, all at the same time. Parents is Rare is a community where parents like me, who have a rare disease or chronic illness, can connect, share, support, and be supported. Hi all. So it's February, which is Rare Disease Month, and as all of us living with and around Rare know, every month is Rare Disease Month. But it is really nice to have some opportunities to really shine a light on the rare disease community, and as we all know, there can never be a shortage of that. So if you haven't already, start thinking about what you might be able to do for Rare Disease Day that's coming up at the end of the month, and maybe even some ways to contribute along the way. If you're still kicking around ideas, there's lots of wonderful options out there. You could you know, maybe raise some awareness on a local level. Perhaps there's an event that's already scheduled near you. I know my friends Effie and Jill have an incredible event planned for the Seattle area. I've got total FOMO and would totally be there if I could. Um, maybe you want to support another national endeavor, check in with some rare disease nonprofits or anybody that you might have some connections with already. Maybe they've already got the wheels turning there. There's a couple of webinars that look really interesting I'm going to be a part of a rare disease male mental health session that's coming up near the end of the month as well with David Ross and some of the other pals in the rare community. Looking forward to that. Another idea, maybe share some facts about your connection to rare, your rare disease, put some things out there. You could also possibly highlight maybe a particular project or rare disease related fundraiser. And, you know, you can do all of these different things in addition to maybe looking for some opportunities on social media. And my guest today on the podcast is Nina Nazar. And among many other incredible things, she came up with the hashtag rare disease truth. So that's another thing you can do is check out that hashtag and maybe even jump in. But either way, be sure to stay tuned here because you've got a lot more to learn about with Nina and the Rare Disease Truth movement. So I I can't say enough good things about my friend that you're going to hear from today. Even if you've met her before, I'm sure you'll pick up plenty of new gems. She was dropping them the entire conversation. And I know every time I get the opportunity to hear Nina speak, I better have my notebook and my pen ready. Nina does a wonderful job sharing her story, so I won't go into too much detail there, but a a couple of things. She had quite the diagnostic odyssey, to say the least, uh, including being misdiagnosed for many decades. She now shares a diagnosis with her two boys, and she brings just some phenomenal perspective to our conversations in rare disease in general and in our conversation today, specifically around parenting with a rare disease although I wouldn't limit her her wisdom to just that one area by any means. Nina is a wonderful person, an incredible advocate, 
the creator of the Jansen's Foundation, and just an all-around outstanding person. I know you'll love our conversation. So without further ado, here she is, Nina Nazar. Hey, Nina, what's happening? Hey, hi, Adam. Nice to be here with you. Yeah, it's so great to see you. It's been it's been a while. It's been too long, I think. <laughs> yeah, we met at Global Dreams last, right? It seems like ages ago. It does. I know. It was so long ago, but that was one of the highlights for me. Nina was getting to finally be able to get to see you and get a little selfie and get to chat for a little bit. It was an honor, and I'm so glad that we were both able to get to the same place at the same time. Yeah, I think that was awesome. I think, you know, we know each other through Twitter and just rare disease and the Twitterverse. And so to finally meet you, it was nice. It was really nice. And to meet many folks that day, right, that we had seen on Twitter was just awesome. It was one of the best times ever for me. When I first came into the rare disease space, Nina, it was during the pandemic or like right before the pandemic kicked off. And I wasn't on social media and I didn't have you know, any connections. I didn't know what rare disease was. And it was kind of a disaster for me. <laughs> and then I finally started finding community and wonderful folks like yourself on social media. And some people were like, man, you've got to get to one of these events. And it's going to be so changing for you. And fantastic that you'll get to like meet people and be in person. I'm such a people person. They were so right. And it felt like forever until it got to the point where we could all get together at the Patient Advocacy Summit. But once we got there, I was just like, all right, I'm home. Like, these are my people. I finally get to hang out and get a hug and say hello. And it was just the best. I think that there is some something really special about the rare community. We can be miles apart and we communicate through Twitter, through chat, through all these different mediums. And but when we come together, it's almost like we know each other. We've been in each other's lives because we've sort of traveled down paths that are very similar. So you don't have to explain much to me when you say anything because we're instantly connected. We know. And I think that that's something not all communities get. And so sometimes it sucks to be a part of the rare disease community, but then on moments like that, you're always like, this is amazing. No matter how many months have gone by, if I see somebody, you know, if I see somebody that I know from my rare disease space, <laughs> you're instantly connected. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. And it's one of the best things about it is to be able to have the community to have the connection. Because if it if it wasn't like this, Nina, I don't know how I would make it through. I think that so many different times multiple times a day. In, in fact, oftentimes when I'm like really struggling or having a hard time and I can reach out to somebody or talk to somebody who does get it and who can be there and be a support or just a listening ear, it makes all the difference. Because those early stages for me, when I when I didn't know anybody, were some of the most difficult and challenging and trying times. Yeah, it gets lonely. And as human beings, we we crave connection and we crave you know, togetherness and being part of spaces. And I think just having a rare disease really, it's very othering, right? You're always on the outside of something. And so it's important for us to find our people. And I'm so glad for social media. I'm so glad for the Twitter world and for just being able to connect to so many folks. Absolutely. Me too. Me too, Nina. So one one thing that, you know, I, I want to kind of come back around to here is, you and your story a little bit. I, you know, I've been fortunate to to get to meet you and and to know you and to learn your story through social media. I think most folks in the rare community, they know you, Nina. You are 
one of the best. And we sure love and appreciate all that you do for our entire community. And uh, for those that might not know you just yet, Nina, would you mind giving us an, an intro and telling us a little bit about yourself and your connection to the rare disease community? Yeah, sure, Adam. So I have a rare disease called Janssen's metaphysial chondrodysplasia. It's a skeletal disorder that affects less than 30 people worldwide. And I wasn't really diagnosed until I had my second son. And I grew up, I was born and raised in the Middle East in Dubai. And at the time, no one really knew what I had. And so I had several misdiagnoses and no one could tell my parents what I had. And I remember some of my earliest days, you know, struggling with this disease, this Janssen's disease that really changed my bones, my structure, you know, made it difficult for me to walk. I've had numerous surgeries that I, you know, to correct my bones. And it's been, um, it's been a very difficult upbringing in terms of just the physical challenges of living with a disability that, first of all, people couldn't diagnose. And secondly, no one knew how to manage. And there were no, there was no one else with the same condition, which was really a difficult thing. So you never really knew. And anyone. And yeah, talk about isolating, right? Like, I mean, geez. Yeah. Yeah. And then think about it, like growing up in the 1980s, where, you know, in Dubai, there was no social media, there was no, we, you know, there was no Google, there was nothing, you know, you had miles and miles of sand and uh, desert. And, you know, my, my father was, he was an engineer, and he would always advocate for me in ways that he didn't even realize he was advocating for me, you know. So I grew up, seeing and watching him in meetings with doctors or on his own, you know, there was, he had no community either. He had, it was just him trying to raise his child the best way he knew with the tools he had. And he was an engineer and he saw this as, you know, something that he needed to learn how to fix in some way in terms of, you know, he would tell doctors her bones are bending and they wouldn't believe him. And so, you know, some of my earliest memories are of him, you know, tying me to an ironing board to keep me straight so that my bones would not bend. So, you know, I mean, he did everything he could possibly think of to to help. And, you know, and then when I, when I grew up and, you know, some of the surgeries reduced and as an adult, you know, you think, you know, okay, what is life going to be? And, you know, it was, it was really interesting because, and I also come from a, I come from, you know, I grew up in the Middle East, but I'm Asian, so I'm Indian. And so my background are pretty conservative people in terms of they don't really, we don't have too many people understanding disability or difference. And so there was always this notion that I would never get married. And, you know, it was just, a really crazy idea that people with disabilities somehow don't get married, they don't have families. And so I had real at one point I think I had convinced myself that, well, maybe that's true, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe a family and life uh beyond just uh having this disability is not something for me or in my cards. And I actually ended up <laughs> getting married to uh Adam. My husband's name is also Adam, and uh, he's good name. from Nebraska, and you know it's a strong name. <laughs> so <laughs> yes. So when we got married, and then you know we we had always been told that I would never have children, and doctors had said so, and so you know we were actually in the process of 
getting paperwork together to adopt a child when I, you know, and I became pregnant with Arshan, my first son, and we were overjoyed and, you know, pretty shocked too. Like, oh, okay. And then, you know, we had everybody telling me that there's no way you're going to carry this baby to term, you know. And at one point somebody said, you know, you need to, you know, you need to get rid of the baby and this and that. And, you know, we, at that one point, I think Adam and I decided we're just going to stop listening to people and then just see what happens. And uh, Arshan was born uh, 2008 and uh, it was perfectly fine. He had no symptoms like me. I was a very sick child. Uh, he was very healthy. He was nine pounds at birth. He was a huge baby. He was the biggest baby born in the ward. And we had no inkling that anything was wrong. And Two years later, you know, my second son was born and, well, I was pregnant with him when we realized at that time that something was not right. And again, it was all very, it's almost like a chapter ending and a new chapter beginning of our of our journey in that we were told, you know, he's got some strange, you know, metabolic conditions and, you know, there were lots of anomalies in his blood. And, you know, none of this was anything that I had seen in my own history. And so, you know, the quest began. I mean, I remember when we started looking for a diagnosis. I remember sending my son's, Arshan's x-rays all across the world to every single skeletal dysplasia department kind of saying, does this look familiar? Do you have any idea what this could be? And I got all these responses back saying, no, we have no idea. We have no idea. And go there, go here. And it was just an endless trail of, you know, closed doors. And I was beside myself. And you know, I was almost nine, nine months pregnant with my second boy. And I remember telling my father that I'm done. I mean, I just don't want to know anymore. I mean, I, I don't care at this point. I mean, I will raise my boys, whatever it is, the way you raised me and we'll be fine. And, but there was just so many new things that were uh, being discovered in Arshan and that, you know, they said he had stage one kidney disease, that he had a lot of calcium in his blood and all things that I really had never heard of as a child. And so it worried me that I didn't know. And I think that that started our journey. And we were really lucky because my father insisted we go and see this one last doctor. And we went. And I remember walking in and the doctor saying, looking at the x-ray and saying, I know what you have. And I was like bawling. <laughs> I was yeah, like, I you got to be joking me. Mm-hmm. You got to be joking me. But she did. And, you know, it's, it's such an interesting story. And I say it all the time because she was in Germany and her professor had shown the class one slide of a Janssen's patient and said to the class, we're going to skip the slide because you're never going to see anybody with this disease. And she remembered that slide when she saw our x-ray. And it was just, it was, you know, meant to be. And mm-hmm. yeah, and she called her professor and kind of said, I don't have one, I have three patients with Janssen's disease. And, you know, at that time, when I Googled Janssen's, there was nothing. There was one paper of another disease that mentioned Janssen's as a sort of reference. And there was one line in that paper that said, 
you know, we can possibly treat Jensen's by turning off the overactive PTH receptor. There was just one line. So Adam, I printed that paper. I underlined that. And we packed our bags and we came to America in 2016 to find this doctor who wrote that paper. Yeah. You get you got that one piece and it was like, hey, let's go. Let's get after it. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, we had that laser focus on that's what we wanted to do. And we found him and Dr. Jupiter in Boston, in Harvard. And, you know, we met with him at the NIH. He'd come down to see me. And, you know, he'd been researching or studying Janssen and skeletal diseases for a long time. His um, team had were the first ones to actually isolate the gene and things like that. So when he met me, I was the first patient he ever met with the disease. And then three months later, he met my boys. And so it just changed everything. And then we set up the Janssen's Foundation in 2016. And then in 2017, we got the first R01 grant that helped Dr. Jupiter's team develop assays to treat Janssen's disease. And then the following year, in 2019, we ended up getting the translational science grant because we proved efficacy of a treatment in the mouse models that were created with my (laughs) genes and DNA. And so once that happened, we got the translational science of the NIH and then COVID hit. And, you know, for almost a year and a half to two years, we were on sort of just like a waiting to see what was going to happen. And then and now we're we're back at it, and so we are just getting ready to submit our first IND to the FDA, and this summer we should be in trial. Oh my gosh, so exciting! I'm I'm really looking forward to that, and hope that it's just the most successful endeavor. And with you at the helm, Nina, I I just know that it will be right. Like I mean, the the you move mountains, you just get it done, and I love every little bit about that. And thank you for for sharing your story there. I I can listen to it every time and I pick up something or multiple things new each time I get to hear you speak. And it's, it's uh, certainly an honor. Thanks for sharing all that. I want to go back through and dive into some little parts that kind of pique my interest and that I'm curious about, specifically coming at it from this lens that we're kind of framing these conversations on my podcast series around parents as rare, right? Like how we how we navigate this journey, because I don't know what I'm doing half the time. <laughs> and Any opportunity I can get to talk with others and learn with and from them, I'm all in. And, and thus the impetus for these types of conversations, Nina. So I, I guess I would want to go back to that kind of 2008 timeframe for you and Adam. When you're kind of going through that family planning phase. You're starting to, you know, think about those things, have some considerations around around it. I've I've had all sorts of different guests on the pod and each one of us have our own little niche area, right? Like where we, we kind of fit in. And for you and your considerations, knowing your history and your background to that point, do you mind sharing some of the considerations that you all had when you're starting to think about starting a family? You know, starting a pers- uh, family is Absolutely a personal decision. And I think that it remains personal and and private to the extent that we talked about it. We had no idea that what what I had, right? We didn't know if it would be passed on because nobody in my family has the disease, right? So I'm the only one in my entire line of family that has 
Janssen's. And it's like a no-onum. It's like one, uh, it's a spontaneous mutation. Because at the time, we didn't know what we had and we didn't have a, a good understanding of it. We really did believe the doctors when they said there's no, you know, there's no chance you would have a baby. You you won't get pregnant is what I was told. And, you know, for, and we really did believe it. And I think that we tend to believe everything that's said to us because we're such, we're in such a vulnerable situation at that point. But I think that one of the, the things we did talk about was, so I, yes, I have a physical disability and yes, I didn't know what it was. But I went to, I, I'm, I'm not okay with the concept that somehow my life was meaningless and not worthy of living in the sense that I would consider not having a family because I'm this way. I mean, how, how does one sort of concile with that definition? right? It's almost saying, well, you're absolutely useless. <laughs> so you should not have a family. And who's to pass that judgment? I mean, you can be totally perfectly fine and have children and be a terrible parent. So I know we had a lot of love to give in our family to anyone who came in, whether it was adopted or natural, or we knew we wanted a family, we felt if we were ready for it. And truly, Arshan in hindsight, and Jahan, Jahan came with the diagnosis. You know, he brought us the diagnosis because he was so textbook Janssen's. And when I think about it, Adam, now in a very philosophical sense, had we not had the children, would Janssen's have a treatment today? Like, would there be a possibility? So we don't know what our roads are or what our path in front of us is. We are only seeing as far as we can see at that point in time, had, did I know that I would move from Dubai to America, lead this organization, nonprofit, you know, be a speaker and advocate for disability, not just rare, but also disability? No, I didn't, right? And so our paths are, are not what always we think. So it's hard to say whether we made a wrong decision or a right one. I think we made the best decision at the time. And, you know, my boys are wonderful. You know, I have been called many names. Like sometimes our articles will come in the paper and you can see all the comments under it, under it and lots of judgment. And it, it makes, you know, it fills me with tears just thinking about it. But people will say things like, what a cruel mother. <laughs> you know, how could she do that? You know, how could she have children? and propagate this disease, knowing all this. And yeah, I mean, sometimes I think we will always have folks like that. <laughs> but then we'll also have folks like you or Andra or, you know, Marnie or others who, who are who get it and they're, they're fine with it. So you find your people. And when I look at my boys, I don't see tragedy or I don't see, you know, a life not worth living. They have challenges. They have mountains to climb. But they're strong boys. They're mentally so strong. And they teach me every day how to persevere. And, you know, they teach me things about myself I never knew. And who's to say that even if they were perfectly fine, that they wouldn't have their own challenges? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well said all the way around, Nina. And thank you for your vulnerability in sharing. I really appreciate that a lot. And I, 
I'm just picking up on this. And as you're sharing, I go back to something that I read on your website, which will definitely get linked up in the show notes so everybody can go and check that out. But one thing that stood out to me was you have to give love a chance. Yes. <laughs> and I just fell in love with that quote that that you you shared there. Um, and I, I think that your, your message will just resonate with so many folks as it already has. And I appreciate you coming into this venue to share about it as well and to give others that hope and that inspiration that you do have to give love a chance. And here's what can happen as a result. And it's just been so many different wins that you have picked up along the way. And it's not without trial and tribulation, but my goodness, the love and the care and the concern that your boys have and the, you know, the wonderful humans that they are is just such a testament to you and to Adam and the work that you all are doing with them. And yeah, boy, so just, just thank you. I appreciate it so much. Well, I think, you know, just to, you know, to the listeners who I, I somehow think that we have ingrained in us that you have to be somehow perfect to give love a chance. Like, you know, you can't have any, you can't have even a small, you know, smidge of something wrong with you. And only the perfect can fall in love or have a family or be parents. And why do we set these kind of parameters? You know, there's so much beauty in brokenness too. There's so much beauty in all of the struggle that we have even. Every day, you know, there's laughter in my house, there's joy, there's, you know, of course there's sadness and tears when we're struggling, but that's not all of it. And I continuously remind my kids, you are not your disease, right? You're not your Janssen's. Similarly, you are not all only um, suffering and trial. You are also the joy, the creativity, the laughter, the love you share between each other as siblings, uh, between, you know, your friends. I mean, they live full lives to the best they can. So did Adam and I make the right choices? We don't know because we still are in the process of living it out. Yeah. Well, I tell you, Nina, you're giving me you're giving me a whole lot of, of space. I'm leaving a whole lot of space in my notebook for when I go back and re-listen to write down a lot of these little one-liners and quotes that you're having here. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So one one thing that I want to talk about with you a little bit as well, Nina, is the you know the misdiagnoses that you had along your journey the kind of the toll that it took. I know that at, at one point when you were going and, you know, you mentioned sending the x-rays all over the place and trying to find anybody that you could to help get some answers, the it's all in your mind kind of crept out at some of those places, or maybe they were just thrown right in your face like they were for me by a couple of different doctors. When you are going through that process and you're trying to navigate and figure out what's going on, how do we respond and what can we do to help with that process? Because that is just the most brutal thing in the in the rare community that I hear on a repeated basis. It's a great question, Adam. I think that one of the things... I have learned to do is to filter noise. And when I say that, I mean to really take away the emotion of the situation, right? So a doctor is saying something to you based on what he's seeing, and he's probably not seeing or hearing the entire picture. And I have learned in those instances to trust myself more. And I'm really adamant about it. You know, I will be in a meeting where I've been in surgery where I have stopped and said, no, 
I'm not going through this, even after I've signed that I am, because I didn't like what the doctor said to me or the way he treated me or something he said that just put me off knowing that I don't feel comfortable in his care. I've really gotten out of the gurney and said, nope, not doing this today. And I think it's you des- you owe it to yourself to be strong in those moments, to really take away some of that emotion and, and see it for what it is. Like he doesn't have the full story. He's telling you something only on half of the truth. And that's important for us to to believe and trust ourselves. And I've gotten really good at that because all through my life, I've been kind of like, you live with a physical disability. You're always being cut down and in every instance. So you're constantly fight, fighting to prove your worth, whether it's in your professional space or whether it's in your just social circle or in your circle in general. So I've known that all along growing up. And I think that it's just my my sense of self-worth is is what what will shine in that moment. So I'm going to go and say, no, I don't think you have the full story. I'll get back to you on that. And then I will leave and I'll do my own digging. And then I'm going to call a few other doctors. But I do not take for truth what they say, because ultimately they are human beings. And, you know, doctors aren't God. Like they are not gods. And we need to work collaboratively with them, right? And if I see that the doctor is not listening to me, yeah, I'm not your patient. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I do that for my sons, you know? Yeah, yeah. It took me a while to figure that part out. And it it does come from, I think you mentioned a little bit earlier, we're just kind of like, okay, you you figure this out. You know what you do. This is your job. And I'm I was always of that mindset as well. Like I go in, I get my answers and I go out and that's what they do. And that, it took me a while to figure out that's not necessarily the case. And, you know, for you, when you've got somebody saying, no, this is in your mind, or you're just seeing things as your kids are growing up, but you as a mom and you and Adam know as parents, like something's going on here. Like, no, no, it's all in your mind. For me, when I've got the symptoms going there, it's all in your head, move on. If we would just stop there and accept that, boy, we wouldn't make any progress. We wouldn't figure out what was actually going on. We wouldn't be moving these mountains, as you say, to try to see what we can do to make these improvements to help Right. You know, move the needle forward. And it's just really not an option for us. Right. And and that's what you have to get into your mind that it may not be an option right now. So when when we first met Dr. Jupiter, you know, the very first email to him was, I read this in your article. Do you, you know, I'm really interested to develop this essay for Jansen's. And he wrote back to me, this was 2015 or 16, but just coming here to America. And he said in his email, and I keep it because it's, you know, it's, it's a reminder of where I was and where we are today. Because he said in his email, there are no essays currently for Jansen's. And this was 2016. And today we don't have one, we have three. Mm-hmm. Right. And we made that happen because, (laughs) yeah, because we believed that it was possible. And I think parents need to know that every time someone says, no, it can't be done. uh, It doesn't mean the door is closed. It just means that they haven't seen, you know, the opening. 
Absolutely. I love that word currently as well. There's not currently here something. And so when we talk about that collaborative nature that you mentioned between us working with the doctors and physicians, like that's only like the door's not closed. That door is cracked open and we're going to barge through it. Right. And now look at you. You got three, (laughs) not one, but three different papers on there. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I think that parents and all through our rare disease community, we have so many examples of parents you know, just barging through that door. But we have to remember that this space is not designed with giving everybody the capacity to do that. And I think that's something we have to acknowledge, that this is a hard thing to do. It is requiring us to be superhuman in many ways. And sometimes, Adam, that's really a hard thing. And so what can we do to ease it for other parents, for other families, for other patients with rare disease, what can we do to make sure that, you know, we're opening the door, we're leaving it open for the others to come through, right? We've done the barging and we're not shutting that door behind us, but we're leaving it open. Oh yeah. Preach, Nina, preach. (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm curious to see here if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about, you know, what, what life is like in in the rare disease space for you right now and the family space for you right now, you have so much to balance. There's all, there's all these different lenses that you're looking at and and living your life through. What's it like? What do you, what do you have going on? The family time, the foundation, the, the health, your boys, everything in between. What's, what's life like for, for you all right now? Adam, it is a juggling act and we've gotten really good at being in the circus, so to say. (laughs) I think that we have to let go of this idea that somehow there is something perfect and there isn't. When, you know, you're running the foundation, you're developing a drug, you're also caregiver to two boys, you're caregiver to yourself. You have to recognize that you need help too. And I'm really blessed because my husband, Adam, is wonderful, and he's a great support. He does all of the physical things I can't do, and he takes care of the boys like nobody else could. And so it's a, it's a give and take. He had to give up his career so that he could be with them, and we didn't have to depend on respite care because the boys are always in surgeries and hospital. And so what does that mean? That means that, you know, financially, we may not always be uh, at 100%. Uh, We may not know, you know, whether we're going to send our kids to college because we have a college fund for them. But we do know that we'll get through the end of the day uh, with our, you know, with our sanity intact. So I think it's a balancing game to know that where you put your energy, right? For us, our focus has been completely on getting this trial up and running And Adam knows that, you know, our friends and family know that. We're very transparent about things. I also know that physically it's really hard for us to travel with three wheelchairs, a mobility van, all of these things. So uh, we get invited, but we don't end up going many places. We spend a lot of time doing art because art is like therapy for us. Both the boys are really artistic. And they draw and they craft and we let out a lot of our energy in creative spaces over the weekends. And we are just okay with not being okay. Yeah, 
Yeah. Well, that's a fantastic idea as well. I'm always looking for little tips and pointers and resources like, what, what do you do? How do you interact? The art side is a great one. I mean, people won't be able to see it on the podcast, but these um, paintings behind me, Nina, are from an art thing that we did with Mito Action a couple of years ago now where we did a, a virtual session. And so my son did one and my daughter did one of a little picture of somebody going through a kite with the or through through a park with a kite that has the Mito ribbon on it. Oh, and that's beautiful. They're, they're like my favorite pieces of art. Maybe we need to do more of that around here. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love that. So thanks. Thanks for those ideas. Those are those are great. And for the peek into your into your life there, I I think that's so important. And as we start to wrap up here, Nina, I mean, I could talk to you all day, but I know we both got things we got to move on to. I really appreciate you taking the time for me. And th- this episode is going to come out during uh, Rare Disease Month. And one of the things that I want to follow up that conversation about your life and the juggling act is the hashtag that you came up with. Wait, was it two or three years ago now, Nina? The rare disease truth movement has been phenomenal, and I love it. And I was wondering if you might share a little bit about that. How did you come up with it? Where where has it gone? What has it done? It's been amazing. I think, Adam, it was totally organic creation. The hashtag started at the, at the real depths of the COVID pandemic, and all of us stuck at home not being able to meet up. I mean, I think our meetups and, you know, getting together as a te- as a group, as a community was so important to, to relight those fires in us and to keep us going. And then when everything shut down and people were at home and we saw firsthand that COVID treatments were coming out like lightning fire, you know, the community was so upset that what about us? You know, the question started, what about us? Like, why don't we have treatments? Why are we being left out? And it made me so upset and so mad that I started just really venting on social media, (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. just crying out, you know, for, hey, what about us? You know, we matter too. And what about us? And over and over again. And the hashtag was just born in those in that moment of crisis, that real depth of darkness that many of us found ourselves in. And the hashtag was just amazingly, it caught on fire in in ways I never really imagined. I mean, it was never a planned uh, movement. It was just people started using it. And, you know, we had people from India and Japan and Malaysia. And, you know, I was just blown away, like, oh, wow, you know, people are, and to this day, they use it. And, uh, you know, as Rare Disease Month uh, started, um, you know, people were messaging me saying, are we going to do this again? And <laughs> I said, sure, I don't think we've ever stopped, really. <laughs> yeah, right. I still use it. I still use it every now and then, too. Yeah, Rare Disease Truth. It's true all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it was funny because this morning, I think it was that somebody, I think, I don't even know the language, but somebody in, I think it was Poland, or somebody had written out a tweet in Polish or some other language and they put rare disease to truth as the hashtag and I was like I are you kidding me that made my yeah that made my day so I went in and translated it and I was like oh my god these are exactly the things we're saying too <laughs> so it was such a such a 360 degree moment for me I was like wow this is so amazing like somebody all the way in a different part of the world is tweeting in a language foreign to ours but has used the rare disease truth in English as the hashtag. And I was like, so great. That's awesome. It is. And it it really shows that the rare disease truth transcends, you know, time and and space and language. And 
it's a universal thing, these rare disease truths. So I, I, I love it. I, I'm so glad that you did, you know, kind of get those vent sessions rolling and got the hashtag to go with it. I do still use it, you know, even even if it's not February, I'll throw that out there sometimes. And I really feel like it's so important for folks to see and understand. It's an opportunity for us to raise more awareness and share these truths that we really do live day in and day out where other folks might not necessarily see it, you know, and I think it's important to have all of those different things come out. You get, I, I, I see the hashtag, you see some that are joyful, some that are happy, some that are sad, some that are mad, you get it all. And those are all valid and truths. So it works out just, just great. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it really, it, it dispels the myth that this is some kind of inspirational journey. No, it's a hard mm-hmm. journey. It yes. is, you know, freaking hard. And mm-hmm. it, highlights some of those difficulties because people are speaking honestly and with vulnerability and you know farmer folks get to see it and people in garment get to see it and I know you know some some of the folks at NIH and NCATS that we work with in the trial have seen it and you know they would text me or they would send me a message saying I never really thought about it that way or uh, that was an insight that I shared with my team so we're beginning to, you know, organically get comfortable with sharing that, hey, we're not okay, or we need a spotlight on Rare in a big way. And what's beautiful about the hashtag is that, you know, we have now, it's almost like an army of people. Like I've lost track of everybody I need to follow because every day you can see new and more more powerful speakers on Twitter and social media coming out and talking about rare. So I think we are growing in numbers. We're ta- we are growing in people who have the ability to speak eloquently and fearlessly, which is important, right? No longer should we be relegated to the shadows and, and, and fighting in these you know corners or under the veils of cover or whatever. I think it's important we come out and proudly fight about what we need. Absolutely. Very well said. Couldn't agree more, Nina. And I appreciate that that hashtag immensely. It's very helpful. It's one that I love to follow and check out. And I would encourage everybody else that, that might be listening here to do the same, whether you have a chance to check this out during Rare Disease Month, Rare Disease Day, or whether it's at any other point throughout the year, follow the hashtag, help spread the word, you know, and feel free to join in and, and share your truths as we continue to all navigate these rare disease lives. Nina, sure appreciate the time again. Thank you so much. If you've got any other closing words or or, uh, thoughts that you didn't get a chance to get out yet, I'd love to invite you to do that now. And we'll make sure to get your website, thejansensfoundation.org, put into the show notes and make sure everybody follows you at Nina Nazar. But anything else you want to throw out there before we wrap up here? No, I think that we've talked uh, and covered most of the points, Adam. The only one thing I would uh, leave your listeners with is, you know, as this is a parent, as rare, I'm a parent, and I wanted to say that, you know, you're doing a great job. Don't ever doubt yourself as a parent. There'll always be those moments of difficulty where you wonder whether it's you're doing the right thing, but just deep down know that, you know, you are doing the best you can with the resources you have and with the knowledge at hand, and it is good enough. Boy, I'm a broken record, but well said again, Nina. Thank you for very much for the, all the insights, for the time, for 
the effort and energy. I know it's a busy time. You've got lots going on, but I sure appreciate you, my friend. You're you're the best. Keep rocking it and we'll connect again soon. Awesome. Thanks, Adam. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Parents is Rare, a series of the Energy in Action podcast. Please be sure to leave a review and a rating for this episode wherever you listen and subscribe and listen to the Energy in Action podcast, where we talk all things Mito. Until next time, remember to show up, be vulnerable, supportive, and kind, and give yourself permission to feel along the way.